Thank you uh, once again. My name is Johan, and uh, as the spelling of the name probably suggests, I come from several different cultural contexts. And um, well, I'm one of those people, so-called the 1.5 generation. It's a transitional generation that will uh, die out, not killed off, but you know, fade out. It's a transitional one. I'm not. Do I sound negative? <laughs> It's not. What it is is I'm neither KM nor EM. I am part of the KM pastors, but I am learning. It's like God. It's new every morning. You think you figured it out, but it's new every morning. And at the very same time, I'm learning the EM way of doing things. So that's what it means. I'm neither this nor that, but I could be here and there and just serve in ways that I can. And at the very same time, I'm a youth pastor. So what that means is I have another bridge to build and cross, not just one between the first gen and the second gen, the KMEM. And now I have uh, some, something that's called Gen Z. I think part of you, some of you are Gen Z here. And now I've served the Gen Z uh, generation. So I have another bridge there, first, second, and third, now fourth, and fifth, and so on. So I just have a lot of bridges to cross, and I call this a calling, because we are called to be Christians. What it means is we're part of the kingdom of God, and as Jesus put it, there's no wall in between. What Jesus has done is demolished the wall of hostility in between the Jews and Gentiles. And in the Bible, if you have that wall demolished, you have no more walls. So that's what it means. We're here to walk toward a fruitful unity. And my prayer is that Mosaic and Chode will be counted among one of them. I don't think there's a lot of positive precedence but there will be first. And again, my prayer is that we'll be considered one of the first uh, peacemakers in the land, peacemakers in this culture, but also in this generation. So that's pretty much who I am. And um, let me just jump right into the Bible uh, because I have a little bit to cover. And this isn't your typical youth ministry pastor kind of giving a sermon. This is more of adults that speak to every generation, in fact, but more specifically to our children, our students. So it speaks to everyone here. Uh, no one is exempt from this message. But again, it has more to do with, I think, the current younger generation. Let me read to you from Genesis 9, uh, from verses 18 to 23. I'm just gonna cover a short portion of it. And can I just read it now? Okay. The sons of Noah who went from and went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, people, from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Amen. Uh, let me just jump right into the text because there's a lot to uncover here. Uh, first of all, this is an ancient text. When you come to church, read a text that is thoroughly ancient, and if you bring your modern understanding and expectations, chances are you'll be disappointed. I know that some of you, when you read this text, you find this very, very, very disturbing. God is portrayed to be some random, harsh, 
unpredictable God. But if you look at the text and what God is trying to speak from this text, and it starts here, but everything ends in Revelation. And I believe you're doing a series on Revelation. I don't have anything to speak on that. But right now, what's, what's starting here will be picked up throughout the Bible and end in Revelation. So God is trying to speak a message here. And that's the message we're trying to uncover this morning or this afternoon. And let me just get right into the Old Testament and Genesis. First of all, when you read Genesis or the Old Testament, uh, a portion, a great deal of it is symbolic, heavily symbolic. Not entirely, but heavily. What it means is that the authors are trying to represent something using sometimes a word, a single word, or a little story, like just, just like this one. So when you read a story, you might see a word that sounds ancient, foreign, or you might read a story that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but God is, sorry, God is uh, trying to convey, a communicate a message. He's trying to represent something out of this word or text. And that's what Genesis is all about. It's about beginnings. And in Genesis, when you structure Genesis, you have to structure it in 10 parts because there are 10 Genesis. Does that make sense? 10 beginnings. In the beginning, and it says, here are the generations of that's a mark. When you see that, that's one of the ten. And there's ten, there's the creation, and there's a short one at Terra. But, you know, when God begins to say something, he's trying to give us a category of people, too. It's universal. We live after the time of Jesus, where a lot of definitions have been redefined. But when you think about the Israelites hearing this text from Moses, I'm not that liberal. I believe the book of Moses were written by Moses. They're hearing a certain specific message about beginnings, and Ham is one such a beginning. Not part of the Genesis, but as this little story will unfold, we'll get to see what he is and what he represents. He's almost a prophetic figure, but on the wrong side of the equation. So again, please remember symbols, remember imageries, pictures. When you hear a word, imagine pictures. It's hard for us, but we'll try, and we'll see biblical concepts even little stories like the one we just read. So Ham is representing, is my voice changing? (laughs) Puberty. (laughs) Ham is representing a category of people, and we'll get into that. He's representing a category of people that will come from him, and generations of people will come from him until the end of Revelation, until the end of human history. And again, he's standing on the wrong side of the equation, but we'll look into those symbols and imageries and biblical meanings. But first, let me, before I start giving you those three terms, those uh, terms I'd like to focus on, let me just try to get rid of the uh, few possible objections that you might have. Uh, I don't think I'm perfectly right, but I don't think I'm that far from being right. I'm a little confident in terms of this. It might not sound satisfactory in your minds, but in the ancient people, this is probably, most likely, what they heard. Well, first of all, if you read on the curses, of Noah on Ham. Why is he cursing Canaan? He wasn't even there. Ham does the bad thing, and it doesn't even appear that bad in our eyes, but why is Canaan being cursed? A lot of reasons. First of all, this is the book of Moses, and Moses is speaking to the Israelites. And for the Israelites, they have a single goal. It's to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan. There's a bunch of Canaanites living there, most of them being descendants, direct descendants of Ham. So when you talk about Ham, 
maybe you don't hear much, but if you talk about Canaan, the Israelites hear something else. So I think that's one of the unsatisfactory reasons, but for the ancient minds, this was most likely the reason. Moses is speaking to Israelites, and this Ham, and I'm sorry, Canaan is a descendant of Ham. And just to add one more, for the people of Israel, it's all about lineage. It's all about descendants in the ancient times especially. And uh, when you think about it, it's just think about a plant and a seed. When you look at a seed and you know what that seed is, before even you plant it, you know what's going to come out of it. I don't know if there's, I, I don't know anything about plants, but let's just say there's a certain, um, a certain plant, a seed in my hand, and if I knew what the seed was, and if I plant it and wait long enough to grow, I will know before I even plant it, because I know the seed. By looking at the seed, you see the fruits and the plants and the flowers. So this is a lot of things that are going on in Genesis. They look at the father of a certain generations of people, and they look at that person as a category. It's a categorical prophetic person. He's a symbol of a people that will come later in the future generations. So Moses is picking that up. He's looking at this generation, the people in the land of Canaan that they're about to conquer, and they see a direct descendants of Ham. And Ham does something that is abominable in the eyes of everybody in that generation, in Moses' time. So he's making that connection. They're the descendants of Ham. And look at them. They're doing the same thing that his father did. So again, unsatisfactory, but more so for a more satisfactory, I guess, in the eyes, in the ears of the ancient Israelites. And if you just look at the generations that come from Ham, I'm going to name a couple, and you'll understand what I'm trying to explain. Let me just give you the first, Nimrod. Nimrod is a mighty warrior. In the Bible, in the Old Testament time, a mighty warrior deserves a lot of attention because he's, I guess, in our days, people like Alexander, a conqueror, a very representational figure. And he creates a lot of cities, one of them being Babel. And if he's the king of Babel, it's very likely that he was behind the Tower of Babel, the, the first, very, not the first, but the first collective effort of being anti-God. God, I don't want your reign. I am my own God. So he's the start of that, and he comes from who? Ham. And then you have other people, like Egypt. But again, think in terms of the Israelites. They're hearing Egypt, and it rings a bell. They just came out of there. And how about Assyria and Nineveh? They'll soon learn about who these people are very well. How about the Philistines? Samson, David, Canaan, well, right now, Sodom and Gomorrah. All these people, they come from Ham. So when you think about God and trying to communicate a message through a drunken father, drunken Noah, and he's blessing his sons, but also cursing one, you see that God is trying to do something already from the very Genesis, from the very beginning. And Ham happens to be standing on the wrong side of God's providence, the wrong side of God's salvation. He will be the father of all the movements, of all the generations of people that will come from him, this anti-God movement, groups that will rise against the God of the Bible and his own people, at least in terms of the Old Testament before the time of Jesus. So you see this playing out. It's a little story that sounds really weird. But if you look at what God is trying to tell them, and if you follow the footsteps of Bible, you see how this thing unfolds. Ham does a little thing in our eyes, a big thing in their eyes, 
but this little thing gets magnified and picked up by the people that come from him until the very end of Revelation. So by what do we know? What does Ham do that is such a big deal for God and for the ancient people and now for us? Well, that's what I'm here to do. Uh, we're going to look at three different words, three different terms that really speak to this. And those terms are nakedness, uh, uncovering, and covering. Let me start with nakedness. It's awfully weird to say this word in front of a Adults, but it's what it is. It's something that Bible picks up, God picks up, and it starts in Genesis. He ends everything in Revelation. What partially has ended it with Christ. We'll get to that too. But this term nakedness, how we have to understand this word to understand what uncovering and covering mean. Whatever those words are, what those verbs are, depend on the meaning of this nakedness. For now we know that Ham let his father's nakedness remain uncovered. That's all we know. On the other side of the picture, you see Shem and Japheth who turn their backs and walk backwards and cover him with a garment. Again, the verb cover. But the first time we actually come across the term nakedness is a little earlier than Noah. It actually comes with Adam and Eve when they sinned. Here's what the Bible says. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves low in cloth. Uh, underwear, so to speak. That's what it is, and we'll get to why this. And so simply put, nakedness is the most immediate and the first, very first recorded consequence of our fall, of our original sin. It was a direct result of our first rebellion and disobedience against God. So the moment Adam and Eve sinned, something clicked in the spiritual realm, and they all of a sudden realized they were naked. And they saw it. And what happened? They realized they were uncovered in need of a covering, specifically the loincloth. So in a way, whatever this nakedness means, we know for a fact that it doesn't have to do solely with the physical aspect of things because it speaks to the spiritual reality of every human being that came as a result of the fall, that impacts all aspects of a person. And no one in this room escapes this reality of being naked, spiritually naked. Because from Adam and Eve, we come from Adam and Eve. Remember the seed and the plant? And we all come from him. For, for a long time, we were destined to share the same reality until Christ came. Uh, let's dig in a little more because covering was needed for many reasons. Of course, now you're being kicked out of Eden. Please remember the word phrase kicked out. You're being kicked out of Eden. Now you need protection. And it's God himself who clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. But you see, when we're looking at Adam and Eve, and you, you look at us, don't even look at them, just look at us. We, our emotions were changed, are changing, changed because of the fall. After the fall, our emotions were changing. Our ways of thinking were being altered after and because of the fall. So this is something, this, some changes happen in the psychological and also the spiritual realm as well. To put it more um, bluntly, as the first human couple chose to leave God for the serpent, voluntarily moving away from the living source, only living source, while choosing to live a lie, they were now experiencing the reality of being spiritually naked whatever this means. 
And now you see this everywhere in the Bible. The Bible picks it up everywhere. And especially in the prophetic books and coupled in Revelation. And Paul picks this imagery up a lot and explains. We'll get to them too. But for now, can I just start with one of the meanings of what it means to be spiritually naked? Because in the book of Moses, in Leviticus specifically, it starts with a sexual reference. I'm going to sound a little bit like Freud, but it's what it is. Because apparently nakedness can carry some sexual connotations, but not just sexual, not that between a husband and spouse, but most of the time when uncovering nakedness pops up in the Bible, it has to do with something shameful, such as incest and, you know, animal thing. All these things that are happening right now in Europe, it's like growing. They want that to be legalized and all that stuff. This was just started in Genesis. And God, when he speaks uncovering of one's nakedness, he's speaking often, very, very often to this sexually depraved state of human beings. I think Freud picked it up. He's a Jew. And uh, he went the other direction. But the Bible sticks with this word, term, and carries in a different direction. I don't know what your identity, idea of sexuality is. Right now, it seems to be very uh, different every time you cross a culture, KMEM and third gen, fourth gen. But whatever it is, I can tell you with a level of confidence that all of us have a common ground. Maybe some people, they, in their wildest imagination, they could think about cheating on their spouses. But I have not met a single person who want to be cheated on by their spouse. I think that's our common ground. If you don't agree with this, I think you need to talk to someone because your identity, your relational things are being heavily severed. And, but if you, I think most of the people would agree, you don't like to be cheated on by your spouse. And the reason why I brought, bring this up is because natural nakedness, spiritual nakedness, actually carries a much more significant meaning. Spiritual infidelity. What it is, is um, it's choosing the serpent over God, cheating on your spouse. And when you see the prophetic books, it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, it's, it's all about idolatry. That's another name for spiritual infidelity. Idolatry takes up most of the space in the prophetic books and also in the New Testament, actually the whole Bible, because the Adam and Eve chose the serpent over God. Israelites chose idols over God. In our generation, we chose other idols over Jesus. So nakedness somehow has to do with this spiritual infidelity, unfaithfulness. So spiritual nakedness, what is it? Sinfulness, depravity, spiritual infidelity or idolatry. And so the nakedness points to the state of being fallen. It's not like a one-time event. Ever since men were fallen, women were fallen, they remain in that state of being. That's why we as human beings, before we come to Jesus, we stay in that state of being, depraved, sinful, unfaithful. If you look at every idol worship that you know, I know a couple, like heretics, all these weird um, worshipers. Everyone that I know involves some sort of sexual depravity. It's because it starts there. And it ends up being a spiritual idolatry. You see, the pre-fallen state of Adam and Eve, they were independent. 
99%, except for that one tree. And they were very able, entirely productive, efficient, effective, and powerful over all creation. But after that voluntary fall, do you know what happened to them? They stood, they stood naked spiritually, stripped off of their rights, protection, and power because they chose a serpent and themselves over the creator. They were now exposed, depraved, ashamed, guilty, and sinful, just like ourselves before, we, before Christ came into our lives. Let me turn to the second word, uncovering. And a bunch of this meaning of the uncovering has already been discussed because it's a stock phrase. It's you uncover one's nakedness. It's a stock phrase, and we focus on nakedness, but nakedness can't really be understood without this uncovering. But of course, there's more to it. You know, just one of the verses in Ezekiel 16.35, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols. So again, nakedness and uncovering speak to the spiritual reality of being fallen. We always choose the idols over God. But there's more to it. And, you know, some people think Ham did something with his father. I think that's going too far. You don't have to do anything to your father in this story because the words themselves have a broad range of meanings. That's how Hebrew works. It gives you a word, and uh, just, you just got to guess by the context. But you see, we know that Ham left his father's nakedness remain uncovered. Shame and Japheth acted to cover it. And we know that Ham is a father of category of generations of people that will rise against the people of God and God himself, the very humanistic anti-God movement, fist in the air, and the spiritual Babylon. That's how it develops in the prophetic books and now in Revelation is the spiritual Babylon, spiritual descendants of Ham, so to speak, and the great prostitute. Again, the language of unfaithfulness and depravity, spiritual but on the other side of the head equation, you have people like Abraham in Genesis, and he becomes the father of uh, the faith. He's, he's the father of faith. And it's, of course, by God's sovereignty and his plan, Abraham starts the movement of faith that will culminate in Jesus. So Shem is categorically and prophetically above Japheth. That's why if you read a couple verses down the passage we read, Shem, Japheth will be in the tents of Shem. Why? Because from Shem, you get Abraham. And from Abraham, you get Jesus. Categorically speaking, there's no one above Shem. So already in the curses and the blessings of Noah, God is speaking. Descendants of Ham will rebel against me until the very end. But descendants of Shem, a certain specific descendant of Shem, will do my will. Now, let's talk about another meaning of uncover. Sounds just kind of sound weird. I mean, it was weird the whole time I studied this. But somehow the word uncover also means in Hebrew, exile. And they, the Bible uses the word interchangeably. And now that I think about it, it makes sense. When you're stripped off of your rights, protection, and freedom, and everything, you become an exile. That's what it means to be kicked out of Eden. Adam and Eve left. They were kicked out of Eden stripped off of their rights. Israelites were kicked out from the promised land, 
not Eden, but from the promised land, the same category of places. And they, they were taken by two people groups, Assyria and Babylon, both of which happened to be descendants of Ham. So you see, this gets carried on a little further. And now in Gethsemane, someone named Jesus is praying, Father, can you remove this cup from me? But not my will, but your will. Now what happens to him is he's hung on a cross. If you think about the imagery, the language the Bible uses, he'll be crucified, hung on a tree, that's a curse from Deuteronomy. He'll be naked, fully exposed, put to open utter shame. Jesus Christ was put to utter shame. And he screams to God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why am I being kicked out of your presence? Well, because he was being identified as a sinner. But the, soon enough, Jesus is resurrected, and you see the story unfold. And Colossians 2, Paul explains this in this very, very similar imagery, similar language. And he's, here's what he says. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. Disarmed meaning stripped off. And put them to open shame. Uncovered their nakedness and by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is stripping off the devil of his power over mankind because Adam and Eve, they bent their knees before the serpent. And now Jesus is taking his power off of him, stripping off the devil of his power over mankind and uncovering the devil's nakedness, doing the exact opposite of what the devil tried to do to Jesus, but now eternally. It's the same imagery, being uncovered and nakedness. And that's why now the devil is kicked out. And again, the, naked, the act of uncovering nakedness, if you see this, if you hear this, listen to this, it keeps everything under the discussion of sin. And you probably see this coming. I don't know if I said it before, but you see this coming. Because this little story about sons of Noah, his descendants, the descendant of Shem, they are pointing towards the gospel. Descendants of Ham will continue to uncover human nakedness, their shame and guilt, and even celebrate it. They will magnify the attitude of Ham. But a certain descendant of Shem will rise to cover our nakedness. One more thing about uncovering, because it goes a little further. In, I mean, in the eyes, in the ears of the ancient people, this is a breach of the Ten Commandments. When you left your father naked, not covered, and you, when you saw it, and you leave him behind, and you go tell others, you're breaching one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, your parents. And for the, this, this is probably what they're hearing. I mean, how do you let someone's nakedness remain uncovered? And then you expose it. You tell the world what happened. You increase the shame of that person, the guilt of that person, when you know what came after the fall. All the suffering that we go through and you let your father remain uncovered, and I, told, I said this already, but the, head, the descendants of Ham will magnify this attitude. And they will do things that Ham did, but on a greater scale. The anti-God movement, we talked about it, fists in the air, cursing God and exalting creation over the Creator. In, in our modern days, this is something that our students hear and see all the time. People deny the existence of God based on what? Human reason. As if the existence of God depends on on their opinions. And they denounce and celebrate everything, I'm sorry, they celebrate and promote everything that is denounced in the Bible, especially 
our younger generation and the, the culture they're surrounded by. And this is nothing new. The ham has, has been around, but right now even more so than before. Encouraging, promoting, and loving what God hates. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I want you to hear this because this is what our students are hearing. And maybe this is some of you, what you're hearing, and maybe even agree, but hear this. This is what our youth are often hearing. Redefine yourself. Forget what God said because he doesn't exist. Become who you are meant to be, not who you are created or born to be. Your nakedness is not your weakness, it's your identity. Cultivate it. Take ownership of everything. God is dead, but you're not. Follow your heart, a big one. And anything that opposes your heart is a form of oppression. Listen to those Christians and other religions too. How judgmental, how uneducated, unscientific. Resist them. They preach evil and bondage to false names of love and freedom, but you, you should live unchained, free. Be who you are. Follow your heart. I mean, not just for our younger students, but this is what you're hearing often. And I bet some of you don't have any problem, don't find any problems with these things that I just said. This is something that people call expressive individualism. It's too much of it, but this is how I define it. It's putting or being very expressive about your individualism. Me over God. Me over everything defined. You see, our spiritual nakedness is encouraged to remain uncovered in this generation. Why? Because in a way, the descendants and or the spiritual disciplines of Ham are once again on the rise. And our students are being immersed in its culture as we speak, even adult Christians too. Sometimes it's hard to find wrongs in these things that I said. Why not? Why not redefining myself? And they say that God is someone who is very oppressive. He's like a, he treats us like a prisoner. He defines everything for us. In fact, God has done the exact opposite. And we see that demonstrated powerfully and visibly for a certain descendant of Shem named Jesus. Let me now turn to the most important term of the three, the final term of the three, and we'll turn to covering, more specifically, uh, the act of covering one's nakedness. And you've heard this enough, the cross, Jesus Christ, what he did. The cross, you know, being, un being uncovered, being naked, put to utter shame, but the opposite happened, and now the devil is forever put to shame. They were exiled from Eden, right, Adam and Eve, but God made sure to clothe them with garments of skins, this is the first instance that we see about the gospel. It was the offended protecting protection for the offender. He provided them with garments of skin. And now, the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Bible, this gets picked up in the context of community. That's why when you read the Bible in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you find expressions like covering the naked with a garment, clothing the naked. What it means is you need to provide protection for the people. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what church is all about. You see people who are helpless, marginalized, exposed. Well, you go and clothe them, cover them. This is a calling of the church. But this is something that started in the Old Testament. This is God's idea, providing protection and covering for the offender. 
And again, we see this done by Jesus himself. The most wonderful imagery of covering one's nakedness is something that Jesus does. But you see, when you talk about Israelites, the people of Israel, when they first heard about Jesus, what he did, they were believers. The first believers were, were Jews. And when they saw this, people like Paul, they caught two imageries. They remembered something in the Old Testament, and they made connections right away. The first was Abraham and Isaac, but the more powerful imagery was that of the Passover lamb. You see, whosoever doorpost and lintel were covered, covered, covered by the blood of the lamb, God's judgment would pass over. See, every sinner is exposed, and Jews were not exceptions of it. Hebrew people were not exempt from it. But when God would see that blood covering the household, the, the entrance into your household and family, he would pass over, and they were exempt from his wrath and justice. Isn't that why we call Jesus our blood, our Passover lamb? Because his blood is a spiritual covering for us. Whoever has that blood is protected from the wrath and justice of God. We're spiritually naked before God, as the Bible says often, but if you had that blood coverage, you're exempt from justice. Gospel. And there's another powerful imagery of the covering received through Christ. And again, in the New Testament, this gets picked up often. Being clothed with Christ. A little bit different. But the New Testament talks about wearing a garment of Christ. What does that mean? Let me just bring up a couple verses. I'm going to read from two verses from Revelation. Keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In another verse, the Revelation says, with white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I'm going to bring other verses, just mix them up. When we're baptized into Christ, we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's two verses mixed up in Romans. And as we clothe ourselves with the armor of God, Ephesians 6. In Revelation 19, the fine linen that we clothe ourselves with is the righteous deeds of the saints. So now we have a different covering that we need to wear. How? We put on Jesus Christ. And we do what he does as a church. And one day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we'll put on a different, a totally different clothing. Not this humanly body, but a heavenly body. Clothing, cover, that will be stripped off of our nakedness. No more shame, eternally gone. No more crying, no more tears. And we'll become like the resurrected Christ himself. We'll wear this new clothing, this covering, when Christ comes back. Friends, I don't know if I made it clear enough. I probably didn't. I rarely do. But the idea here is that God's act of covering is an essential part of the gospel. It could well be the gospel. And you're sitting here because you believed or want to believe in the gospel. So what are we to do? Well, believe and receive God's covering for us and live it out. Two things. Believe in the fact that God has fully covered our nakedness, our spiritual nakedness, and he has embraced all of us. Justification. And then live like one. Sanctification. God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skins. Now through his blood we're covered with his blood, the blood of the Son of God himself. And that's why you see Peter and other writers write verses like this. 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers and does not expose. This is just something that I made up. And love forgives sins and does not put one to shame. Love embraces and does not let go. Love once died and rose again to life so that you and I may live. Love has welcomed sinners home, not leaving them in eternal exile. And love will bring us into our glorious eternal home far better than Eden. The gospel is God's act of covering our spiritual nakedness. He knows we're naked, sinful, depraved, that we always choose idols over God, money, health, future over God. Not that they're bad, but it's just a priority. Unfaithfulness that God is pointing to. And yet, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to close the sermon. And I would like to invite all of you um, to think about where you are now. The, the schools you go to, the workplaces you're part of, and the homes you live in. Let me ask you a question. Is there a culture of embrace in it? Last year, it became pretty evident that we live in the divided states of America. Generational gaps, parents and children. Cultural gaps across the plaza. I come from the other side of the plaza. And there's, sorry to bring this word up, but political gaps too. And I'm seeing that our students live in a society where so many things get constantly exposed. They're constantly exposed. Social media, peer pressures, and um, not much of a covering. Have you heard about the cancel culture? People cancel other people based on, I don't even know what. The world, the culture, at least around here in the West, trying to cancel Christianity. Ham's act still has a strong pull on our cultures. The anti-God movement has always been around historically, but a little more so nowadays, especially among our young generations. We have a lot of Ham's, but I wonder, do we have a lot of Shem's and Japheth? Where are the meek? Where are the forgiving? Where are the kind? Where are the people who know how to embrace? And they're asked, where is the gospel? Here, of course. Chode, of course. But we don't see that often, at least in this culture. And I uh, personally stand guilty before all of you. When I think about the way I talk to my wife and my kids, the way I treat myself and my co-workers and other people around me. Where is embrace? Where's covering? The people who are different from us are easiest to cancel on a personal level. Just don't have to talk to them. And no wonder, our young generation, when you talk to them, I usually give zero effort. All I have to do is listen. And they go on and begin to ask for my last name. You know what that means? They don't have anyone to listen to them. Just accept them the way they are. And they're looking for a safe place, Pastor Dave, you've said, where they, people will be accepted the way they are. Just like Jesus had accepted the, 
the way I am without seeing any fingers pointed at their directions. A place where there's embrace, covering over uncovering. And all of this reminded me of a movie, and then I'll be done priesting. My apologies. They're trying to figure out when is it going <laughs> to There's a movie that I watched. It's called The Wonder. Not Wonder, just Wonder without the... It's about a boy with a different way of looking on his face due to some early um, birth complication genetic stuff. It's probably worth your time if you can watch it. My kids, eight and four, they watched it. They, didn't want, they want to watch it again because they go to school. And they see this happen. Imagine a kid who used to wear a helmet being sent to a public school. And uh, in this story, there's a teacher that kind of acts like a narrator of the movie. And he's trying to teach the kids how to live. And that's the punchline of the movie. And one day in the movie, he writes something down on the board. He says something that's really shocking, at least for me. When given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. You know why it was shocking? Because I'm thinking in my head, well, if you're, you don't go to heaven for being kind, you go to heaven for being biblically right. And all these things, you, you see who I am. And then I realized, this is exactly what Jesus has done. I stand covered because he chose to hang on a tree, uncovered. I'm, I'm glad that God has chosen to be merciful, that he's not seeking to be even with me, eye for an eye. You think I would have a single left, single cell left on my body? I'm so happy that he's chosen to cover my nakedness and not be even with me. But think about the right to Jesus. How did he get the right part done? By bringing all the wrong upon himself. He was unimaginably kind and merciful. Friends, so we put down whatever weapons you're holding in your hands and in your heads. I realize that this culture around us, however evil, however ham-ish they are, they're looking for the kind of embrace, this very kind of embrace that Christians have tasted. Jesus accepting the way we are, loving us, dying for us, while we were still sinners. So the kind embrace that Jesus has shown is a very light, this culture, and this generation specifically, is yearning for, longing for, and looking for, covering of our nakedness a culture of embrace. Let me pray and close. Father, we thank you for everything that you are. Kind, unimaginably merciful, trying to protect the offender while you yourself were offended providing everything for us, like Abraham and Isaac. You provided your own son for us so that our nakedness will be forever covered, that we will never remain uncovered, naked, in our own fallen state. So Father, once again, thank you for your blood that covers us. Now, I just pray that you will give us courage to go and live the very 
embrace that we've experienced out in this world. To the younger generations, but to our coworkers, to people around us, to our family members, that we'll actually begin to cultivate this culture of embrace, the very love that we have received. So Father, once again, give us courage and help us to move on toward a fruitful unity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.